0: Scripture this morning is from John 6, verses 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum.
1: We're picking up right where Pastor Dave left off last week in chapter 6 of John. Some hard sayings, some hard sayings of Jesus. And as he explained last week, there's this thinning out process that's happening So at the start of the chapter, Jesus is feeding 5,000 men, which means there was 20,000 people there. There's this huge crowd. They're amazed by what Jesus can accomplish. Everyone's satisfied. But as things progress, Jesus turns the screws tighter and tighter, and the, the people that actually want to follow Jesus narrows. And so we'll see this morning that he will continue to turn the screws, And more people will peel off, peel away from seeking after Jesus. The requirements to follow Jesus are tight and getting tighter. And the the requirements work to sort out who is truly willing to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. And he will lay some of those out this morning. So as we continue our story around Jesus claiming that I am the bread of life, we find Israel In the wilderness, grumbling. The Jews continue asking questions about his identity and his abilities. And each question in the passage gets a reply from Jesus, along with some explanation and conditions to what it means to come to Jesus. Jesus offers eternal life, but it must be on his terms. So the question for us is, will we humbly come to Christ in faith? Are we willing to do it no matter the cost? So the outline of our passage this morning is, is based on these questions, two sets of questions, and then Jesus' response within each of those. And you'll notice he doesn't necessarily answer their questions directly, but he further explains what it means when he says, I am the bread of life. And so he invites people to come to him, and he gives two conditions for them to come. And they're both marked by the word unless. There's the, the requirements. The first one's in verse 44. He basically says no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And the second is in verse 53, where he says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In other words, unless you do these things that I am calling you to do, you will not receive life. The promise is life eternal, but it must come on Jesus' terms, not on our own. So as we work through the terms that Jesus lays down, I want you to ask yourself, as we work through it, where do I get hung up on what Jesus demands? Is it doctrine? Is it something that our culture might think is weird? Are there places where I'm just more comfortable with less than what Jesus calls me to? So before we get into the text, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us with this passage. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for sunshine and sound of birds and even the sparkling jewel-like snow that you have given us. We thank you for glimpses of spring and the pictures of resurrection that we see around us. Thank you that we can gather this morning around your holy word. We thank you that your word is perfect and it accomplishes exactly what you purpose it to do. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that you have revealed specific things about how your salvation works, and we get to see pieces of that today. I ask that you help me to preach your word clearly and faithfully. May anything that is not true fall to the ground. But whatever is true, whatever is profitable, please apply to our hearts through your spirit. And in all things, may Christ, the true bread of life, the great I am, be magnified this morning. Amen. Well, before we get to our passage in John, I want to take us back to Exodus, Exodus 16. It gives us a little bit of the picture of the background of of what John is getting at here. So in, in Exodus 16, God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, brought them out through many signs and wonders, and now they're wandering in the wilderness. And they start to get hungry. And we'll look at at verses 6 through 12, and there's some themes that we'll we'll pull forward. John is pulling them forward into his his story. Uh, So kids, if you're listening, listen for one word and see how that shows up in, in our passage. So again, Exodus 16 What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, You shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So now we move to John chapter 6, and we pick up in verse 41. And what's the first thing that we see here? So the Jews grumbled about him. They're sitting here in a a wilderness area, grumbling because they received literal bread but they don't understand who the I am is. Why did they grumble? It goes on and says, they grumbled because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You see some of these parallels with Exodus. God's people don't understand what God is truly trying to get them to see. We have a bunch of Israelites fed in the wilderness, questioning what is going on. And the Israelites didn't fully understand what the manna was in the wilderness. Here, in our story, the Jews don't understand either. The word manna itself means, what is it? So in effect, the the Jews here are saying, what is it? What is going on here? Who is this? They think they know who Jesus is. They're familiar with Jesus' earthly parents, They know that Joseph is Jesus' father, but Jesus is going to show them that they actually don't understand. And again, just like in Exodus, we have an I am statement. This man is claiming he came down from heaven. And the Jews want to know, who is this? Who does he think he is? So verse 42 says, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Here's the first question, and Jesus will respond to it. In John's gospel, the Jews miss the significance of Jesus many times. But it's not always from sheer ignorance. They know the Old Testament. Verse 59 says that this discourse takes place in the synagogue. So these are people educated in God's word. The Jews understood the law of Moses and They understood that anyone taking the Lord's name, I am, in vain should be stoned. Is this guy really saying I am? Did we hear that right? This is the same guy that's Joseph's son? He's just a normal man like us. So Jesus begins his reply. And he doesn't directly answer their questions. He just begins just as the Lord did in Exodus 16 by commanding the people not to grumble. And then he puts out the terms for how someone could come to Jesus. Verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Jesus. The first part of the condition is that it's an exclusive condition. No one can come. And a better, more accurate way to say this is no one is able to come. No one comes because no one is able. This is the result of the curse of Adam. Even if we tried, we cannot come. And worse, we don't want to come anyway. The fall has cursed all of our faculties, including our desires. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says it this way. For the mind that is set on the flesh, our natural state is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our sinful flesh has no desire to please God. We have no desire to seek God. We don't naturally want what God wants. And while the problem is obvious that no one is able to come to Jesus on their own, our God is gracious. Despite man's inability, God provides a way for us to come. The Father must draw us. This might be a hard saying. You might hear the idea of the Father drawing people, and that sounds hard. And while there is a responsibility for us to come, it must begin with what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is that in our sinfulness, God must act first. And in his mercy, he does. He draws us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us life. The great pastor, the theologian, John Calvin, describes it this way in his commentary. He says, We ought not wonder if many refuse to embrace the gospel, because no man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ. God must first approach him by his spirit. And hence it follows that all are not drawn, but that God bestows this grace on those whom he has elected. God is not forcing people who would not want to come, nor is he overlooking people who would have otherwise come. Calvin continues his quote and says, it is not violent. God's, the father's drawing is not violent. So as to compel man, men by external force. But still, it is a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit, which makes men willing, who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. Here's another way to say it. The bad news is that no one is able to come. But the good news is that the triune God has made a way for people to come to Jesus. Your family history doesn't matter. You can't claim the goodness of your parents you aren't denied because of a bad family situation. Your knowledge of facts doesn't matter. Your amount of good deeds won't gain the approval of Jesus, nor will your load of bad deeds disqualify you from coming to Jesus. What matters is that you're willing to come to Jesus in full humility and faith and repentance. So Jesus begins with a a very exclusive statement that excludes all of us, all of humanity, no one is able to come apart from the grace of God. This is true. But within this is another expansive idea. Verse 45 says, And they, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 54, 13. It's part of a a passage promising the new covenant. And it's this idea that there will be all types of people that are now included in God's family. It's the promise that all people will be taught whom the father draws. It's, It's similar to other passages from the prophets that talk about this new covenant. Jeremiah 31 talks about the spirit who will write the law on people's hearts. That's the kind of teaching that verse 45 is talking about. So the point is that while no one can come on their own, the people the father draws is both an inclusive and an expansive group. He will draw people from all nations. And everyone he draws will come. And this is jarring to the Jews. And that will continue to develop in John's gospel. Jesus goes on and he in verse 46 he, he makes a claim to his credentials. Remember that the Jews are asking, who, who does this guy think he is? It's Joseph's son. But he goes on and says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. He again is making a claim to his divinity. He's saying he's from the Father. And he came to bring life to all who the father draws. And he came to reveal the father to the world. So now Jesus returns to the original question in verse 47 about bread from heaven. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus, again, claims he is the I am. And then he compares two kinds of bread. The Jews are essentially appealing to the wrong kind of bread. The manna in the wilderness brought temporary nourishment. But they had to eat it daily and continually. And it still couldn't provide eternal life. Everyone in the wilderness died. That bread wasn't meant to give eternal life. And now Jesus is offering something greater than the manna in the wilderness. He's offering himself. So the the Jews are appealing to the wrong kind of bread. They're also appealing to the wrong father. In verse 31, they appealed to their their fathers in the wilderness and, and to Moses. Now they're staring at the true living bread coming from the heavenly father. They're staring him in the face and they don't understand. And Jesus is not excluding the Jews from salvation. They just are wanting to come to salvation on their own terms and not on Christ's. So ask yourself, am I willing to come on Jesus' terms? Do I want life in Christ or am I content with less? Jesus goes on, turns the screws again. And he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You can almost hear the air going out of the synagogue. It's like the party scene in a movie where the record skips and suddenly everyone's looking at the main character. Did Jesus just say what I think he said? This leads right into the next question. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give his flesh, give us his flesh to eat? Did he really mean what he said? Any doubt about what Jesus said is now removed. He doubles down. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you." If Jesus had a chance to backpedal or soften those words, he doesn't take it. He says a, a version of this six times in this passage. <laughs> He's clear. This is a hard saying. The main idea, feed on my flesh and drink of my blood or you have no life. Now we hear eating flesh, drinking blood. That sounds strange to us in our world. But it's even more shocking to a Jew who knew his Old Testament. This is incredibly troubling to them. Eating flesh was not to be done. It was listed among the curses in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. These are the covenantal curses. And it was warning them that this would happen. That if they broke the covenant, these curses would be enacted of eating children. And this horrific episode is played out in 2 Kings 6 and Jeremiah 19. It's one of the most horrific episodes in the history of Israel that people were eating their own children. And this is hard hard to deal with, but it's what Scripture says. And you have to think that the Jews probably had some of this in mind. It's the same with the blood. They were not supposed to eat the blood or drink the blood. After Noah gets out of the ark, Genesis 9, God makes a covenant with Noah and his family, which permitted them to eat meat, but do not eat the blood. That's because the life of the creature is in the blood. This idea is repeated in Leviticus seventeen. It says If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Where is the blood that makes atonement by the life? Again, what Jesus says here is hard. It appears that it's contradicting God's law. But Jesus has something different in mind. Something more glorious than a a weird meal that might violate God's law. But again, his audience misses who Jesus is. Jesus is not merely a man with some cryptic sayings. So if it's not literally eating and drinking, what does it mean? How do we understand Jesus telling the people to feed on his flesh and drink his blood? Well, historically, some have interpreted Jesus' words to mean that unless you take the Lord's Supper, you have no life in you. This is a passage that the Roman Catholic Church, for example, bases a lot of their view of the Lord's Supper on, or (laughs) communion, or the Eucharist. Their understanding of the bread and the blood are informed by Jesus' words here, and they take that to believe that The bread and the wine are actually transformed into Jesus' body and his blood during communion. And that you must eat on that to have life. But this is wrong. That view would mean that Jesus is sacrificed continually at communion. The Bible is clear that it was a one-time sacrifice. One time for sins. It replaced the need for perpetual sacrifices. But you can see how taking Jesus' words literally could take you in the wrong direction. Now, all the symbols of the Lord's Supper are here. Jesus is talking about his body and his blood, eating, drinking. You can see the connections even to our position of the Lord's Supper. In the timeline of John's gospel, Jesus hasn't instituted the Lord's Supper yet. He does that closer to the end. And at the same time, John's original audience would already have been familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus does institute the Lord's Supper. They would have already participated in the Lord's Supper in a local gathering. So it's too much to say that John is specifically talking about the Lord's Supper in this passage But we also miss the rich connection if we ignore it completely. But if it's not specifically talking about the Lord's Supper, what does it mean to to feed on Christ, to drink his blood? By feed, Jesus means to believe. Believe all that Jesus is and all that his word says Israel was instructed in the wilderness to leave no manna until the morning. Now Jesus is calling for that same kind of eating. We're to believe all that Jesus is, does, and says. These are Jesus' terms. We either take them and get life, or reject them and perish. Further, Jesus is pointing past the Lord's Supper to what the Lord's Supper represents, to the cross. The place where Jesus would take on these covenant curses. The place where his body was destroyed. The place where his blood would be poured out on the altar, just as Leviticus 17 says. Jesus flipped everything around at the cross. His blood brought life. Through his death and offering his body and blood, we are nourished. We receive life. And we are brought into covenant with God through the Son. Hebrews 10 Connects the flesh and blood to the cross for us. Says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, we get access into the holy places through Christ's blood and flesh. So come to Jesus, but come on his terms. Feed on the true flesh and the true blood. These sayings are hard. The disciples will say it in the next few verses. Jesus tells us, though, that if we do not come on his terms, we will have no life. But Jesus also gives us the promises of life in these passages. He promises more than life. He promises life. He promises the resurrection to eternal life and also that he will abide in us. So unless we come to Jesus on his terms, we have no life. The opposite is true as well. When we come to the Son on his terms, we get life. If we trust Christ and all that he says and commands, we do have life. And new life is not merely eternal life, someday far in the distance. We have life now, meaning we're alive to the things of God in a new way. We, view, we can view everything in this world with new eyes. Have you experienced this? Suddenly we have new priorities. Things you cared about prior to faith in Christ are less appealing. We get new relationships to live life together. Our existing relationships, like our spouses and children, suddenly carry greater importance. New life brings new angles to see creation. We can see it as a gift from God instead of some impersonal force. But he goes on, he says, we also have the promise of eternal life. In the larger passage, in in John 6, Jesus promises multiple times that he will raise up his people on the last day. He says so again in verse 54. If we have something even better ahead, what can death do to us now? We can work hard now, knowing that it is not wasted in a meaningless life with nothing afterwards. We can look ahead to new glorified bodies, dwelling in the presence of the King for eternity. Jesus also promises that he will abide in us and us in him. Abide is one of John's favorite words. He uses it more than any author in Scripture. Abide means to remain. Jesus is promising here that if we feed on him, if we drink of him, he will remain with us and we will remain in him. There's a certainty there. Jesus will not leave the people whom the father has drawn to him. So remember these things. Remember that Jesus promises to be with us always. Remember this as we turn to the last section And we think of how do we respond to these hard sayings? Jesus is claiming that he is God come from heaven. He says, no one is able to come unless the father draws them. And then Jesus goes on and claims that the only way to true life is by this strange saying of feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. The passage doesn't tell us exactly how the Jews responded here. They were grumbling and quarreling with Jesus but it doesn't say exactly how things ended. But this passage, along with the sweep of John's gospel, shows that many Jews refuse to accept these hard sayings of Jesus. They refuse to accept the claims that he was making. Even some of Jesus' disciples will leave after hearing these things. So how will you respond to the terms that Jesus gives to receive eternal life? What will you do when you come across a hard teaching of Jesus? that you don't naturally like? What will you do when Christ's words calls you to do hard things in his name? What will we do when others hear these hard things and think bad of us? There's four ways to respond to these hard sayings. First, we need the word of God. We need more than a five-minute quiet time. We need to be known and shaped by the word. We need all of God's word. We need to thoroughly know the entire story of scripture. We need to know God's law and how to apply it well. And as we do, our lives and doctrine becomes more aligned with God's. We will see more and more of who Jesus truly is. And his terms will be our terms too. Second, recognize that following Jesus will cost you. So prepare yourself. It might be with something simple. Maybe you are already following Jesus, but giving your testimony on video and getting baptized seems too uncomfortable. But coming to Christ means coming on His terms. So if you have not been baptized, this might be the simple first step out of your comfort zone by obeying Jesus. There will be harder things following Jesus. It might mean sharing the gospel with someone that might lead to awkwardness or even rejection. There are worse things imaginable. Third, and related to that, we need to brace ourselves for hardship. Let's be honest. We live in a culture that hates God and the things of God. There's almost nowhere in our world that is not stained, let alone dominated, by our secular humanist culture. You can't watch a children's show or a football game without seeing the wickedness of our culture on full display. It's everywhere. And that conflicts with a Christian worldview. And those conflicts are, at some points, unavoidable. It doesn't mean we go looking for clashes or stirring up controversy. It will find us. So what will you do when a hard saying of Jesus Conflicts with what your company wants you to do. Or a family member who wants to celebrate things that Jesus condemns. What if people hear that we love Jesus? What if they hear that we feed on his flesh and eat his blood, so to speak? We'll be called strange. We'll be called intolerant. Hateful. Maybe they'll see us as a cult. Are you willing to identify more with Jesus than approval from others. Yesterday in Masculine Mandate, we were discussing these pressures in the workplace. We see the direction that our world is heading. And there will likely come a day for those who are employed where your job will come into conflict with something that Jesus says. So where's your line? Is it pronouns? Is it refusing diversity and inclusion trainings? The challenge is to work it out before you're forced to discover where your line is. Work it out ahead of time. Are you prepared to take a stand for the glory of Christ? When Jesus had the chance to nuance and soften the blow, he doubled down. And we should do similar when we have the chance. Maybe there are times where we lean into it. Someone asks, do you really believe God made everything in six days? Yes. I also believe in floods and giants, great man swallowing fish. And guess what else? I believe a man rose from the dead. While these scenarios are are new for our current time, our current culture, these things are not new for the people of God. The first century church was believed to be cannibals because they ate ate the body, and drank the blood of Jesus. Saints in in the Old Testament faced hard things all the time. Hebrews 11 gives us a little summary. It says, Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They weren't all conquerors. They didn't always make the right decisions. Sometimes they were cowards. But by God's grace, many of them found courage at the right times. Which leads us to the last one. Fourth, pray for courage and faith in these hard sayings, in these hard times. When you come across a hard doctrine, ask God for knowledge and wisdom and understanding. When you see hard things in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, come to Jesus in prayer. Ask our great high priest for courage. Joshua was commanded to be strong and courageous. That isn't something we work up in our own power. We must ask for courage. These things are hard. We're living in hard times. Jesus told his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And these hard sayings are no different. So will we come to Jesus fully and only on his terms? If you will not come to Jesus on his terms, all of his terms, then you will not live. But if you do, you will live. You will experience life now and eternally, and
0: Jesus will abide with us forever.